Hello, I'm Isla Ajar. I'd like to welcome you to the very first Centre for Turkey Studies podcast. We at the Centre for Turkey Studies regularly host debates and discussions with academics, politicians, journalists and other experts on Turkey and the region, as well as producing our own research and analysis. In this podcast series, I'll be following up with our guests to delve deeper into the topics they cover. For more information on us, visit our website, seftus.org. That's C-E-F-T-U-S dot org. Or follow us on Twitter at seftus.org. That's C-E-F-T-U-S-O-R-G. On February 12th, we were joined in the House of Lords by one of Turkey's best-known writers and political commentators, Ece Tmelkaran. Ece discussed her new book, How to Lose a Country, published by the Fourth Estate, with Labour peer Lord Maurice Glasman. Many uh, events start with the same question. So, you're going to tell us about Turkey, or are you going to, you know, please tell us, us, tell us about Turkey. Although the book is not about Turkey. It starts with my country, but then uh, with the experience, with the political and Uh, historical experience of Turkey, uh, recent historical experience of Turkey, it tries to project, you know, it actually tries to project this experience to the European countries and US. I do think that there is a global malady uh, that we are going through, and we tend to call it right-wing populism. And Turkey has a lot of experience in that. For the last 15 years, we have been uh, seeing an political situation which has been going down the hill, as many of you here, uh, I'm sure, already know. I wanted to uh, see the confusion, political confusion and political mess, which does not only invaded Turkey, but also started to happen in European countries and in Turkey. Everybody has been, you know, people in Turkey, especially those who have been critical of the regime, have been exhausted throughout the years. Uh, but Europe, uh, European countries, European people, and American people uh, still have the energy. Uh, and I thought, since this is a global matter that has to be handled globally, we need the stamina of Europeans and Americans, and they need the experience of Turkish people in this uh, thing that we call right-wing populism, in this phenomen- about this phenomena. Um, this is why I, one of the reasons I wrote the book is this. Uh, the other reason, I was so bored, in fact, of feeling, of having excessive feelings constantly. And I think uh, that has been exhausting many people in Turkey as well. Uh, it, the constant bombardment of news, the constant bombardment of immorality coming from the political power, and uh, constant oppression, and most importantly, the constant bombardment of absurdity exhausted me and my people. And uh, the most exhausting part of this process has been, uh, you know, unstopping, uh, you know, the, 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 mm, <coughs> the constant feeling of astonishment, being appalled, being surprised, uh, being ashamed of ourselves, and so on and so forth. So I was actually bored bored of these feelings. And I also thought that many people in Europe and in the United States are going through the same thing. And I thought maybe if I can write the experience of Turkey, I can save uh, save them from losing, you know, wasting this energy and time with this excessive feelings uh, because of the right, rising right-wing populism. Um, so yeah, this is why I wrote the book. Okay, so you were exhausted from being outraged. Yeah, and I think uh, this country is going through the same thing at the mm. moment. They are constantly outraged and that excess of uh, emotions about politics is quite unnecessary, I think. And did and in what way did that resolve your...? It becomes, you know, paralyzing. 
Uh, and then people start n uh, not to think, but rather just react. And everything becomes, you know, dependent on reactions. And the politics are uh, the politics <coughs> is limited to reactions and quite emotional reactions, and that doesn't change anything. We have been, uh, you know, beating ourselves with this question: How can they be so cruel? How can they be so absurd? How can they have the political power? Can be so uh, ruthless? But that kind of astonishment, that kind of shock, does not change the fact. That's why I think uh, the book is good for those who are beating up themselves up uh, with these such questions in Britain, in Europe, and in the United States, especially in the United States, in fact. So um, before we get to, to Britain, um, I need to announce publicly, so that you know, which I mentioned to you in private, I really support Brexit. I know. And, yeah, I, I just and, learned um, before coming in. And I think it's um, a great moment of... Uh, of possible, and I've got real objections to the EU, but we'll get to that in a minute. That's just about your general analysis. Uh, but the first thing is, is, is I've read the book and I, I really enjoyed it very much, but I was still searching for this explanation. How did the Kamalist elite, but not said in a, in um, how did the Kamalist ruling class, what's your explanation of how they lost their grip, because that's what, how the space opened up for, for Erdogan and the Justice and Development Party. What's your, why did it, it have so little affection um, among the, the Turkish poor and the provincial poor that you talk about? What's your analysis of, of that? I'd really like to know why the old order fell apart. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, the book is not about Turkey, and I have to emphasise yeah. that. And Kemalism, uh, how it ended up in this way, blah, blah, I'm sorry, etc., etc., uh, is, <laughs> is very specific to Turkey. Yeah. And, as you know, Turkey is a very, very young democracy. Mm -hmm. Actually, I should ask you, how did this centuries-old British establishment found itself as a, you know, as a, you know, surprised and appalled uh, right after Nigel Farage came up, for instance? How did this one man, so to speak, uh, could shape the entire politics, entire, na entire narrative for the last two years, and the, you know, the famous British establishment couldn't do anything. So, yeah. uh, I think it's a fair question, don't you think? Not really. Because, no. Um, <laughs> no, if you ask Nigel me Farage. such a question, I can ask you that, yeah, yeah. because both but, but answers are <coughs> equally complicated. This isn't. Nigel Farage has never been elected to Parliament. He's got a radio show, and it's just completely mistaken exactly. to think that Nigel Farage shaped this. This is a. We can talk about that, but this is a long-term story about the renewal of Parliament and the restoration of accountability in politics, and it's a very mistaken view of what I would say, you know, a progressive view that essentially democracy is bad and. And that leads into, do you have a, I'm just interested to know about, about you know, the, the relationship between um, how it became so sour, that relationship, but to answer your point about here, Nigel Farage was a kind of marginal character in this. Um, there are a huge number of trade unionists, Steve's here, we had a very, on the left, we had a very active campaign um, a left-wing campaign and trade union campaign mm. against the EU, and and and, and 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 that was that. So I would say that it's just historically mistaken. So Trump is president of the United States, Erdogan is president of Turkey, and Nigel Farage has a talk show on LBC. They're not really comparable mm. figures. Okay, they are not comparable figures, but well, I didn't compare them anyway. I just said that the, you know he shaped the entire uh, and I'm, I'm narrative. Really disputing that. That's not okay. the narrative. Okay. All right. Uh, well, I can dispute I about you know Kemalist Kemalist you know state and because that dichotomy, which actually was quite imposed on Turkey by um, you know AKP supporters, mm -hmm. uh, by Western intellectuals, and uh, yeah. Basically, it was like that, and uh, Western media, mm -hmm. and we were caught in that dichotomy, uh, thanks to many reasons. That's why dichotomies uh, are not good. 
dichotomies are limiting mm -hmm. and they are dimin diminishing the capacity of politics in mm -hmm. every sense. And one of the things that I try to tell in the book is uh, the, you know, how right-wing populism, in fact, terrorized the politics and it always reduces the entire politics into uh, miserable dichotomies, yeah. like in this country, like in the United States, or like in Turkey, or in France. And this dichotomy can be named as Kemalism versus uh, Muslim majority, mm -hmm. or Brexit years against Aunt, you know, Remainers. Remainers. Oh, or, you know, real people, <laughs> real people <laughs> against, you know, uh, American establishment. The reason I wrote this book is to get rid of these, uh, you know, these dichotomies and the hostilities and the polarization that these dichotomies create. It feels like I'm angry. Actually, I am just, you know, shouting for you to hear. Yeah, yeah. So I am not angry. <laughs> to make it, you, you know, yeah. clear. Um, so, uh, it's not only the dichotomies, it's also the confusion that is uh, surrounding the, these dichotomies. Uh, people in the United States, in Britain, in, as the, we, uh, they have been in Turkey, uh, are really confused with this very basic question. Who are these real people all of a sudden? And are, have we been in touch as media, out of touch as media, as intellectuals, as, as uh, politicians? Uh, what are they trying to say? And why did, what do they believe in? And how did they all of a sudden became an identity, an entity, and so on? So um, this is why we have to g see through the political and you know moral confusion. Uh, in our, of our times mm -hmm. and see the main mechanism of how right-wing populism work. The main logic behind all this noise uh, and the you know, fundamental mentality uh, of this phenomena. That's why I wrote the book and that's why it's called mm -hmm. Seven Steps or Seven Common Patterns of Rising Right-wing Populism. Yeah. But what I'd like just for, for people to understand is that when you see through this right-wing populism uh, can you just give a brief account of those seven insights that you develop in the book? No, yeah, whenever again. somebody asks this question, mm. they, they regret it uh, somewhere around <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm three, because it's, it's quite long. <laughs> it won't be the first time I've asked a question I regret, so go ahead. Yeah, um, so there are seven common patterns of right-wing populism according to this book that I have written. Mm -hmm. Uh, you are also welcome to find this eighth one, but seven is always a good number, I, like I thought. Seven, yeah. <laughs> it's a religious number. Exactly. Yeah, it's you know, it's mystic and so on. Yeah. Uh, one is, uh, you know, create a movement, the party is over. Uh, because the party, and actually your, this refers to your first question about the book, uh, the party uh, being part of the representative democracy it seems like a passé concept at the moment. And all over the world, not only in Europe or America, but in Middle Eastern countries, people are losing their, um, you know, admiration or faith uh, in representative democracy. And this has a historic reason uh, that goes back to several decades, uh, back to several decades and starting from uh, end of 70s, uh, when they started to strip democracy from the concept of social justice. Uh, so, party is over, representative democracy is over, so let's create a movement. And movement is always a promising word. word. Uh, party stands there, it's a still concept, whereas movement is promising action and change. So, create a movement. It's, a, it's not like this, so it's, it's a long chapter about what, what is movement and how it is, why is it is mesmerizing for people and so on and so forth. The second step is um, disrupt rationale, terrorize the mm -hmm. language. And there's a funny bit about that in the book, Aristo talking to a yeah. right-wing populist. And I wanted to decipher the narrative that rising being populists use in order to terrorize and dismantle uh, the conversation rules that knowingly, knowingly or unknowingly we operate with. Uh, and then, um, of course, the third one, and I think that, yeah, it is the longest chapter, uh, Immorality is the New Black. 
removal of shame from public sphere. Um, and also that chapter connects uh, removal of shame from public sphere with the post-truth, the concept of post-truth. I do think that uh, the post-truth uh, world could not have been possible if shame didn't uh, transform so dra dramatically in the last three, four decades. And this goes for entire humankind. I'm not talking about Turkey, I'm not talking about Europe, I'm talking about uh, humankind currently living on this planet. Uh, and the fourth one is dismantled judiciary and political mechanism, uh, which happened very fastly, for instance, in the United States when Trump all of a sudden shut down the government and the entire American establishment uh, had to work for weeks uh, to get, no, even for, for almost two months, I think, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, to get the establishment work again. Um, dismantling the political and judiciary mechanism, I, I think this is quite, you know, uh, open, it's, you know, it already, it is very, it doesn't need any explanation. And uh, fifth one is, I love that chapter, um, laughter, uh, yeah, uh, it's about political humor and uh, it tells about how political humor and laughter, sarcasm, uh, starts uh, being, uh, uh, you know, it, it is in the beginning, it is a political tool, it's a tool for resistance, but then by time it becomes such a comfortable shelter for the opposition that people do not want to go out of it. I think this is quite relevant in this mm -hmm. country, you know, traditional yeah. British yeah. science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And six is design your own citizen, and I hope this country or any country won't see it uh, in the future, uh, which happened in, in my country. It is either happening through raising new generations according to the uh, you know, likes and dislikes of the regime, or getting rid of those people who are not obedient completely. Uh, when right-wing populism uh, gets into the system, let's say, into, in a country, uh, one thing he does, it does is uh, try to, you know, they are, it is dividing people into two. And this reference of divi division can be anything. It can be Brexit, it can be Trump, it can be Kamalism or not, you know, it can be anything. And then on, uh, the fight starts and it's, uh, it seems like there is a very, very complicated story there. And there is always a you know, uh, problematic story, obviously. But what is important here is, uh, one, that dividing effect. And second, actually, those stories about Brexit, about you know, Kemalism, about Trump, do not matter. What's, uh, at the end of the day, uh, as time goes by, you come to understand that what is important for the right-wing populism is the total obedience. Total and unquestioned obedience. And at the end of this entire process, as we are going through now in Turkey, uh, the story comes to who is obedient to the party and who is, who is not, or to the leader. Uh, so it was Kemalists in the beginning, 15 years ago, and then it was, uh, you know, Kurds, you know, who were not really wanted uh, or not, who are not, you know, uh, were not fitting the uh, likes of the regime and so on. Uh, it always changed and finally it came to who is obedient and who is not. So I think design your own citizen is pretty much about that. And the last one is actually design your own country. Mm -hmm. And it becomes only... Uh, those people's country who are completely and totally obedient. Well done. Thank you. Really thank you. So, um, in all that, do you, do you make any distinction, because I was really looking for it, between good populism and bad populism, or left-wing populism and right-wing populism? How do you see the political 
resistance to this. Mm. Yeah, especially in Britain, when I start talking about right-wing populism, it automatically creates the question, left-wing populism, what do you think about that? Uh, you didn't I, really I, challenge me, but you were yeah, yeah. You know, genuinely so, asking, I like obviously. That, yeah. um, uh, and I really want to tell them, like, uh, is there around you any kind of left-wing populism that is right now threatening anything? And there is no such thing. So it's a quite theoretical mm. question to keep the balance, sort of, which is a, uh, it's a big subject in the book, keeping the balance and that obsession of balance and whether it is balance or not. Anyway, so uh, <clears throat> I don't think populism is an ideology. And there's a huge discussion about this. What is populism? Is, mm. an ideology, is it an ideology or a political <coughs> tool? And there are, in fact, many, uh, many academic books written on populism, right-wing populism or populism in general. Um, but all those books, I think, uh, talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to write a book that echoes behind the, uh, beyond the uh, echo chambers. Funny thing happened to me on Frontline Club. Uh, my first you know, event was there, and there was this professor talking to me. Uh, you know, asking the questions, and he right away started challenging me. <clears throat> this book is good in that sense. It creates this mm. challenging energy. So, yeah, I like it. Um, and the professor I said... I like it too. Thank you. Okay. Um, yeah. And this professor has been teaching populism for the last 20 years. Poor man. Exactly. And this, you know, young, younger woman comes along, and, you know, I wrote a book... Yeah, it's yeah. about populism, and I, I think I know everything about it, and here's how you make it clear to people. It's kind of, uh, you know, frustrating for academics, I think. I think so. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know what he told me? I have been teaching 20, uh, populism for 20 years, and then after a while, something else happened, and he said, I didn't see a populist in my life. I didn't see breaks, I mean, I didn't meet them. And I said, good for you. And then in the audience, there was a Brexit here. And that was his chance right, yeah. to, uh, you know, explain him what, explain him what populism is, and I don't think that is very, very uh, convenient for a professor, you know, who has been burying himself in this uh, academic uh, knowledge. Whereas I think we need clarity now, and we need it urgently. So clarity. Clarity. This book, I, I wanted to bring some clarity. Like, okay. What is the situation? What is the real story? What's going on? And everybody has to understand it. It's not only, you know, we talking to each other in these, you know, uh, sure. uh, rooms, so to speak. Uh, while I was here, I did a lot of events. I talked to, you know, quite brilliant people during these events. But the most interesting conversations I had with about the book is in makeup, uh, you know, rooms of the TVs or taxis or you know mm -hmm. people who work at home and they are more curious about the ones who whose job is to write books or to read books because they need to know really need to know what's going to happen it's not a, uh, it's not an intellectual curiosity it really affects their life because they want to know if they will have a home in two years or not mm -hmm. and one Moldovian woman, younger, young woman, told me something very interesting, which is at the heart of this book. Uh, she's working in a home as a caretaker, and she said, you know what, I think there is no home for anybody anymore. And I, I, I you know, in, the event, in these events, I have been telling people, you know, the entire Europe is like musical chairs at the moment. Everything is disintegrating, things are happening, everything is elusive, and, you know, everybody's trying to find a chair to sit down before the music stops. And this woman told it already, nobody has a home in Europe anymore. We don't know if we have a home or not. So, yeah, this is why we, had, have, we need clarity and we need it urgently. I mean, what so do you think? What I think, I think quite a few things. So the <laughs> first, the first, first one is is about a failure. So I think we're in. A, a, I'm agreeing with you that we are in a political moment at the moment. That I interpret from within a kind of socialist tradition. Mm -hmm. So I, me I, too. I so, follow yeah. Gramsci, and we're mm -hmm. living in an interregnum. 
mm -hmm. a, a mm -hmm. time in between times. It's and a very dominant ideology which is called globalization or liberalism or capitalism has mm -hmm. been extremely dominant for the last 40 years. So let's just go through that. Capitalism is precisely that belief that there is no home, that we are rational individuals maximizing our self-interest. Mm -hmm. And that's a conversation I wanted to have with you, is that we is a democratic idea, a we that can resist this mm -hmm. enormous pressure uh, that capitalism has to turn us into commodities. Yeah. And we're not a commodity. Mm -hmm. So that's where the populist attraction for me is, is that you've got to assert a human being and a natural environment. So I find I've worked a lot with different religious communities and I always say that the good thing about them is that they don't think that the free market created the world. You know, they think that there was something before that. Um, and there's something sacred about a human being and their natural mm -hmm. environment. I'm just introducing you to my kind of populist side. So, um, so that's one, one side of it. And then there's this liberalism thing, and I don't mean by that liberty and freedom. I mean the idea that an individual is outside of all social relationships and is a chooser, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. which says nothing about how to bring up a child, nothing about an ethos. Um, and then, you know, then there's the administrative state, you know, that mm -hmm. also treats people as individuals and procedurally. And that all comes together in a globalization in which there is no home in this world, where you should mm -hmm. move and, and, uh, and move around. So this idea of a home is, is kind of a fundamental way of resisting, exactly. resisting all that. And I think that that's the nature of the interregnum. There are people on the left who believe, you know, super, what is it called, luxury communism, or no, fully, fully automated luxury that. communism. Caviar de gauche. Yeah, yeah, where we yeah. just, you know, where, where we just, you know, get other people to clean our toilets, but we make our own espresso, you know, and, and, and we've hit some kind of socialist <laughs> ideal. Um, and, and so what this does is subordinate politics and democracy. Mm -hmm. It turns politics and democracy into an administrative, or what we would say, treaty compliant. You know, that's mm -hmm. the problem with the EU, is that it's based on constitutional treaties. So resisting capitalism becomes kind of illegal. You know, because it defies free movement of labour, capital, goods and services. I'll just introduce you to this. So this interregnum is an argument about everything, sanity, reason. And that's what I wanted to come to you, is that, so what I do is I make a distinction between rationality which can be contested. Mm -hmm. So for example, in the crash, 2008, does anybody remember the financial crash? Is there, is there something in living memory for people? So I went through all of the academic work, and in a world of more than 100,000 academic economists, two predicted the financial crash. Right? And yet, they don't accept that there's a problem with their rationality. They think that they're rational and that any resistance to this economic rationality is populist or demagogic. Hmm. But what we're actually living through is a challenge of uh, a contestation over reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I wondered if it was worth making a distinction between reason and rationality. That all the, so when Michael Gove, who obviously I'm not an ally of, says we've had enough experts, which you quote in the mm -hmm. book, yeah. he's talking about economists predicting doom, you know, that mm -hmm. it's going to end in doom, and he's referring to the continued failure of academic economists to make any reasonable predictions mm -hmm. about how it will go. So um, this is what I'm saying to you, is, is, is that this is, this is a moment for, I think, for us to put forward a different view of what is reasonable, and part of that would have to be a very generous and inclusive we. Exactly. That would be the difference, uh, not, not a, but not to, not to abolish the we in favour of the I. Forgive me, I'm just talking about a section of the, of the book. Yeah, where in the book there that. is this we and I and how, ne you know, actually the perception of neoliberalism, you know, the, the neoliberalism's mm. perception of human being. Actually, uh, my lord here uh, is yeah. talking about the book uh, because the apologies, book I'm just showing that I read it. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just showing, I'm really, that's what I'm doing. But I'm kind of embedding it in a wider yeah. conversation. We are completely agreeing, except for the religion part, 
Okay. Maybe we should talk, because we this talk third chapter, which is the longest chapter about shame and immorality, is about you know, calling people to create a secular morality. I'm not saying this because I'm coming from uh, a country where there are more Muslims than you know, atheists. But I am saying this because mm. I read Gramsci as well. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so I am thinking that neoliberalism, or actually capitalism in general, uh, has left a human being uh, without a meaning. Yep. You know, yeah, that's why you are returning to religion, I think. You, know, you are looking at that realm, so to speak. Uh, find the sacredness and so on. Whereas, I believe that human is sacred itself, mm. and I am um, you know, this miserable person who chose to believe in humans, mm. which is a quite disappointing and desperate attempt. But yeah, still. No, lovely. <laughs> uh, all of, all and I do think that they can create their own uh, secular morality. And there have been attem attempts in human history to create that. And one of the reasons we are in this confusion, we are in this political and moral mass, is that we couldn't create it yet. One. Second, uh, the book is based on the main idea that you know, right-wing populism <coughs> is not a uh, thing, a natural disaster that happened all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. It started uh, uh, at the end of 70s or beginning of 80s rather, uh, when a woman with a leather aspire bag said there is no alternative. And it wasn't only she wasn't only talking about economy, mm -hmm. she was also talking about a certain uh, definition of human being. Yeah. Uh, and that definition is now collapsing with, uh, you know, alongside uh, with the representative democracy without a social justice, stripped of ju social justice. This is why we are going through this rising right-wing populism, because people are, are righteously angry. And uh, everybody is angry. Everybody is angry for several reasons, for different reasons, but unfortunately they could have been mobilized, energized, uh, and politicized by m richer politics, I think, rather than promises of nostalgic greatness mm. in Turkey, in the United States, and in Britain. Well, okay. nostalgia, just to, because uh, this is something I, I've looked into the Nostalgia means a longing for home. That's the actual yeah. meaning. So you shouldn't be so, so contemptuous of nostalgia because you're also talking about how to, how people can create a mutual home in the world. I'm just checking. Ho well, we'll talk so about nostalgia home is is a, is a is a way that always that sort of rationalists have dismissed popular sentiments relating to political aspirations. So I'm saying I'm just raising an issue, we don't need to pursue it. That nostalgia is a contested mm -hmm. political concept. It's not just to be used and it and you know and it's not just about a restoration of a form of greatness. It's a concept that things can be better than they are. I agree all, all I think as ever with people on the left we've got to get better at agreeing with each other. So mm -hmm. I'm agreeing with you. Um, that the failure lies in us, in our ability to create a genuine, diverse and mutually respectful politics that takes seriously the role of democracy in resisting capitalism on the one hand, mm -hmm. and in preserving individual liberty and freedom of association on the other. So there is a problem with us, is all I'm saying, in the politics that, 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 that we've created, and in a kind of capitulation in some ways. Um, to Margaret Thatcher, to the idea that, yeah. there, I mean, the EU is based on there is no alternative. The exactly. EU, so that's why it's worthy of rejection, is all I'm saying. To reject it, it um, is a good thing. But I'm deeply aware... Oh, but wait a minute. Yeah. EU, I'm, like, I'm not sure EU is based on it, but the entire economic system in this uh, world is based on it. I don't think EU is necessarily the source of that there is no alternative, uh, you know, motto. For the sake of the room, I won't get involved in a discussion of the Lisbon Treaty with you. I think that would okay. be unfair yeah. to everybody, but that's the sort of thing that I like doing. First of all, 
had a lovely of you to be here, and I hope Thank that you. You, you feel didn't say now. anything good about my book, though. I said lots of good things. Now I'm going to say one big good thing. Get the book. <laughs> it, it's it's a it's a it was really very 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 good and really stimulating to me. I mean, I really. I'm engaged. going to quote you. You know, yeah, yeah, behind, yeah. 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 You should. You should get him off the cover and put me instead. <laughs> yeah. Um. um and to say to all of you, really thank you for coming very much, everybody. Thank you for coming. Thank you. I caught up with AJ after the event to ask more about the book and find out what she made of Lord Glasman. Hi, AJ. Welcome. Hello, Isla. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, we're very grateful for you being here on this auspicious occasion. AJ is here to talk about her new book, How to Lose a Country, The Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship, which is published by The Fourth Estate. So, Eddie, this book is really a wake-up call, I think, to those of us outside of Turkey, particularly in Europe and in the US, to really recognise what you call the warning signs of right-wing populism. And you draw upon the experience of Turkey, your experience of Turkey, to really try to show us that however well-ingrained we think our democratic traditions and institutions are, that we really have to be alert to the risks that we face from right-wing populism. And really, we need to uh, be aware of that before it's too late. And before, as you say, we are exhausted by the absurdity of a full-blown populist, right-wing populist exactly. regime. Yeah. Do you think that's a fair characterization of the book? Um, <clears throat> exactly, exactly. And thank you for making it so clear. Um, I don't want to be the person who's going around and saying winter is coming, uh, but yeah, winter is here, in fact, we are in it uh, at the moment. And um, it is not me telling about Turkish experience solely, but I really want people to talk about their own experience after reading the book, um, because it is not about Turkey's. As you said, it gathers the information and experience from there, but it all, the book also looks at you know Britain, uh, other European <clears throat> European countries, or and US. Uh, so, and I try to find out the similarities uh, between uh, all these political experiences, and I'm afraid there are too many. So that's why I try to see through the political and moral mess of our times and see you know, try to bring up uh, bring uh, out the main mechanism that makes this giant right wing populism machine that we are all uh, subjected to in a way. Um, yeah, and I guess uh, people will recognize uh, their own country in the book as well, uh, and they will know after reading which uh, step, so to speak, uh, their country is at at the moment. So, as you're saying, this is a, you're, you're showing this as a global phenomenon, something that is not just um, localised within Turkey. You also talk about how you think that right-wing populism can give a cause to um, people living in the neoliberal capitalist system, which is devoid of, of an ethical cause. Um, and I was wondering, do you think that is the driving force between this sh global shift towards mm -hmm. right-wing capitalism, or how do you explain the overall global trend? Yeah, well, I wrote the entire book to explain that, so I'm going to very roughly summarize it now. Actually, on the day of this recording, um, I, I wrote a piece for The Guardian, and I talked about the difference between pride and dignity, which is very much related to your question. I do think that there was a uprising, a global, you know, partly global uh, uprising um, during 2012 and 13. Uh, you know, when Tahrir, Gezi, and Athens and Spain was happening. You know, actually, people uh, masses around Mediterranean basin uh, was giving out a shout to the other, you know, countries. Uh, it was almost the last call for help uh, to protect human dignity uh, from neoliberalist um, perception of humankind, which is quite diminishing. And then their voices were not heard. They were either suppressed or they were swollen by the uh, corridors of conventional politics. And now we are now facing another um, 
a different kind of mass, which is uprising at the moment, uh, and asking for their pride back. Um, I wish we didn't have lost the chance then, and then, uh, and because we did, we are now facing these very angry masses all over the world, uh, who are uh, asking their pride to be mended by wrong people. Uh, they are targeting scientists, academics, journalists, uh, politicians, and so on. Uh, I'm talking about right-wing populist, uh, you know, movements here. So, and they are obviously uh, organized and mobilized by wrong leaders, so to speak. Um, I do think that in the very heart of the uh, political confusion that we are witnessing today uh, lies the very uh, definition of uh, humankind by neoliberalism. Uh, they, I think uh, dominant system reduced uh, humankind to a machine uh, which can work on the desire to have more and the fear of having less. And uh, I do believe that humankind is now protesting against it without uh, the ability of articulating their uh, real demand, which is human dignity. Uh, it is quite unfortunate uh, that we you know, missed the moment where, when they could articulate that demand during Tahrir and Gezi, and now we are uh, seeing these masses uh, who lost their faith uh, in democracy, in you know, in political establishment, and now they're asking their pride to be mended, and this is quite dangerous because between pride and dignity, there's a world of difference, and dignity operates with love, whereas pride operates with hostility and anger. Uh, so I am not sure how we're going to deal with it. That's why I wrote the book, uh, and I want people to think with me in a way. Uh, because I do believe that the answer to our times will come from collective thinking, not from one political guru. So some of the things that you just talked about were issues that came up during the uh, public meeting that we had on Tuesday evening, where you're in conversation with Lord Maurice Glassman, and the Brexit debate uh, came up, and I think you have some differing views on what that means. Uh, and without going too much into that, um, I think Lord Glasman's position is that Brexit could provide an opportunity for a reinvigoration of democracy in the UK. But you have seen some of the arguments that have been presented around Brexit, a lot of which did involve things like pride mm -hmm. and the whole taking back control slogans as part of this right-wing populist movement. But obviously people like Lord Glasman could see this as a, as a left-wing opportunity. So in that sense, do you think that left-wing populism could be an antidote to this right-wing populist trend that we're seeing? Well, it's one of the experiments, obviously, and Lord Morris Glassman has been so generous and kind. He's, um, you know, it was truly inspiring to meet him because once for all, I heard something um, that we can discuss about. Uh, he's for Brexit, and obviously I am, you know, I can cr critique that. And uh, but for the first time, I think I heard some uh, arguments coming from left uh, about Brexit, uh, which is better than to make Britain great again. Um, so I am very thankful to him because he opened my mind to a different angle. But I am not sure, uh, you know, letting populism would be an antidote to our times, uh, to the malady of our times. Um, but what will be the remedy uh, is coming together with those people as, as well. The collective answer that I mentioned earlier should not exclude anyone who is genuinely uh, eager to join the discussion and who truly wants uh, a dignified solution uh, for this uh, political and moral mess. Uh, and I'm very much looking forward to talking to uh, Lord Morris uh, Glassman again, because actually 
we are, mm, you know, our central uh, perception of humankind is not different than the other. Mm. Um, he thinks that, you know, in the, in the heart of the problem lies the lack of dignity or humankind being stolen of their dignity. So I, I think we can find some common ground to, you know, talk, discuss and solve this matter together. Um, and as for Brexit, I have to tell that uh, I'm not supposed to, you know, I don't feel like uh, talking about it too much because actually it's British people who are supposed to understand it. And a native can only understand the uh, real complication of the problem and how the emotions operate underneath the discussion. But what I am uh, serving them, so to speak, with is um, I, I am telling them how these emotions uh, play out uh, in the longer term how this discussion and the attitudes in the discussion, political discussion, uh, have quite dangerous um, consequences. So, and that they have to be careful about, you know, messing or playing with the emotions when they are doing politics. On both sides, left and right wing populism, uh, they do naturally operate on emotions of the masses. Uh, well, but how we are going to organize this, or how, uh, in which direction we should, uh, this should be mobilized, is a giant question that should be handled really collectively. Following on from that, at the end of the chapter that you have on terrorizing language, you talk of the way that language has been employed by uh, right-wing populist movements, and you say at the end, with a quote from Albert Camus, that we have lost a language of common humanity which is uh, quite a bleak reading of our times, but you said just at the beginning that winter has come. Um, and I wonder, how is it that you think we can overcome this void that has opened up? Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps that's what you were saying about this has to be a supranational conversation that has to happen. Yeah, uh, yeah. Albert Camus' uh, quote is quite important to me because um, in Turkey, I felt that way, you know, the mm, fundamental faith that we have in, the, in this belief uh, that if we speak to a human being in human language, we can communicate at the end somehow. And there is a point uh, in time when you're subjected to right-wing populism that you lose that fundamental faith. And then on, any kind of communication uh, becomes impossible. And that is very, very disappointing. It's act actually, it is devastating because you start losing uh, your faith in humankind, which is a very mm, dangerous thing to feel. Be because then you become cynical, uh, you, you retreat, and you become depressed uh, in all senses of the world, word. So yeah, before losing that, I think this country is especially has to stop and think, you know, calm down and think about how they speak to each other, uh, what they speak to each other, and what they are actually telling to each other. Because politics has been reduced to dichotomies uh, in all of, all, all, you know, all over Europe and US. Uh, and those dichotomies are terrorizing our understanding of humankind and our way of communication drastically. So uh, I think a, a bit of attention is required there. And I wonder what role do you think that journalists and the existing political establishment can play in this? Because you point out on quite a few different occasions how ineffective the traditional ways of challenging right-wing populism have been. So whether that's appealing to people's sense of shame or an emotional appeal or whether it's been pointing out uh, internal logical inconsistencies in uh, right-wing populist arguments. You say they've they've been unable to pin down and really cage in um, the the arguments that have been made on the side of the right-wing populist. And what you would like to see, I mean, a journalist yourself, how do you think that um, journalists and people in established positions can better mm. tackle that kind of 
uh, I think the first rule here is not to be protectionist and you know uh, not uh, not to go on the defensive side and uh, separate yourself from other people. I think main uh, struggle here at the very beginning of uh, rise of right wing populism is to defend the first uh, to protect the first line of defense uh, defense I would say yeah. Uh, where people are separated into two groups, real people and not so real people. So I think journalists and the establishment, first of all, uh, should really find a very smart way uh, to, uh, to stop this uh, separation, to stop this division. And it sh they shouldn't play into that game and they shouldn't try to prove themselves as real people as well, but rather they should reject the entire discourse there you know divide, which divides people to real and unreal uh, and then on if they couldn't stop the attack there uh, i think the best thing to do is to look at how the discussion is shaping and to see the main logic of it and then you know again not to play into that that's why i wrote the book how to lose a country because this is how you lose it uh, finding yourself in this game that you didn't shape, that you you know didn't know even it began, and then all of a sudden you find yourself playing your role, which was actually given to you by right-wing populists. So if you if you can see through this mess and see the main logic, that is a very good start uh, to start doing something uh, as the establishment, as the journalists, especially journalists. They should have full attention to the logic uh, of right-wing populism. You point out a few times in the book how reactionary all or the majority of opposition has been, and that really, as you said, they've let the contours of the argument be shaped for them mm -hmm. rather than taking on control and mm. trying to shape Mm -hmm. um, their own context of the debate mm -hmm. um, and you talk about I think being like a rabbit caught in the headlights <laughs> which I thought was a good analogy thank you <laughs> um, so I know you've you've been keen to say that this is not about Turkey but this is the center for Turkey studies so I think I need to ask at least one uh, Turkey specific question I'm interested to know your thoughts on the early years of the Justice and Development Party the AKP Obviously, there was quite a lot of hope for the AKP when they came to power in 2002. A lot of people thought that they could be a progressive force. Do you think that those people were naive and they were incorrect? Or do you think that the AKP's project actually changed? Many people who were hopeful of uh, AKP, um, I think most of them, in fact, didn't go uh, around Anatolia like I did and see who these people are for themselves. So they were operating on the narrative of AKP in the early years. And that was a hopeful narrative. But hopes of the supporters, especially from liberal and leftist crowds, were completely misplaced. Because these people are not coming from a democratic background. These people are not coming from a liberal background. So when you see them face to face, you know that narrative and the reality was completely different. And, it, you know, it didn't require some sort of genius to understand this. Even I could understand it. <laughs> so uh, I think the fault there in the beginning, fault of being uh, excessively enthusiastic about AKP, was that they were so much caught in this uh, zeitgeist, you know. Uh, and it wasn't only in Turkey, it was all over the world. Uh, there was this expectation, a false expectation, in fact, that there will be a perfect marriage between moderate Islam and democracy, and that would be great for Middle East. But this this idea was produced in a laboratory. Yeah, it wasn't created in Middle East. Nobody asked us even if we want this or not. And the second giant mistake of this idea was that it was almost saying to all the Middle Easterns. You know, this much of democracy is enough for you if you're Muslim. And from the very beginning, I rejected that idea and I criticized AKP and I have been, you know, have been through a lot uh, because of that. And people like me in Turkey were blamed of being supporters of the army as opposed to AKP and democracy. 
we were being, you know, blamed of being paranoid and yeah, such things. So it took us 10 years, almost more than 10 years, in fact, to make ourselves understood, especially in European countries and in US. And when finally they understood, it was already too late anyway. Uh, so yeah, that project, you know, perfect marriage between moderate Islam and democracy did not work out and failed, you know, uh, in a colossal way, not only for Turkey, but for the rest of Middle East, uh, Northern African countries. And that manufactured project has taken many lives, one, and has ruined countries politically and morally as well. So yeah, we are now witnessing a failed experiment, in fact, especially in Turkey. In your chapter on design your own citizen, uh, you have quite a focus on the role that women play and in Turkey how there have been quite stringent lines drawn between women that have behaviour that is acceptable to the regime and women who don't. Um, and you also say that when you're looking for hope, you often look to young women. So I was just wondering if you could tell me a bit more about the centrality of women in both of these senses. Well, uh, especially in Middle Eastern countries and in Turkey, unfortunately women carry their uh, political choices and their beliefs on their heads. They're not allowed to keep it in their heads and they are you know, expected to carry on their heads as a headscarf or not having a headscarf. So I think they are the most vulnerable uh, to political changes and engineered political societal projects. Uh, that's why I call you know, those women who, are, who have been and who are still very complacent with the regime in Turkey, uh, cut out dolls of the regime. But also there are the other women who resisted, resisted this project with their lives. You know, there were women who uh, committed suicide. I mentioned one of those uh, cases in Turkey, the insane and melancholy. There was this young judge, uh, you know, she was a candidate to be the judge, and she was great, she was brilliant, but then she posted the fo this photo on her Facebook, drinking beer, uh, like on a Saturday, and when she was interviewed for the job, the High Commission of Judges and Prosecutors said that her uh, character is not uh, good for the job, being a judge. And she committed suicide at the end. And there are several women like this. So uh, that's why I really do think that these young women in Middle Eastern countries especially, and in Europe now as well, should be supported emotionally and you know, in, in, in political life as well. Because they are the ones uh, who feel the powers of the regime uh, or right-wing populist movements uh, in their bones. And they are the first ones to do that. Uh, and they are the ones who, uh, who are affected most. So that's why they look like they are fighting for their lives when they resist right-wing populism, because they actually are fighting for their lives. That's why I am hopeful for them, because they are the ones who know that they're going to lose big when right-wing populism prevails over political and moral sanity. You also say that there's always a young woman who asks you about hope uh, at the end of every discussion. <laughs> so I'm not sure whether I should fall into that trap or not. Please do fall okay. into that trap. <laughs> so is, there, is there any hope? Um, is there any hope question uh, somehow um, inhabits some sort of defeatist emotion. And I, that's why I don't like the question. And if we didn't have so many fears, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't feel the need to ask this question. That's why I don't like the question itself. But then if there is hope, I do believe that the hope is in young women. Uh, and I'm talking globally. I'm not talking about Turkey only. Uh, globally, they're rising up uh, in several uh, ways, uh, with several political and uh, social demands, and they are more enthusiastic, as far as I can see, than their you know men from their generation. 
yeah, unfortunately so. <laughs> AJ, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, so you Aila. It was me. wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.